Hey guys, and welcome to the first episode of the Paper Cuts Podcast. Today's episode is called The New 52 and You. Enjoy. Hey everybody, and welcome to the Paper Cuts Codpast, where we talk about cod in the past. <laughs> I no, messed that up, no. didn't I? Yeah. Okay. Oh, right. silly me. <laughs> I am laughing I'm... so hard right now. This is uh, this is the pilot episode of the Paper Cut Podcast, and I will be your interim host for the evening, Chris Randazzo. And with me this evening is Rachel Miller. What's up? And the website proprietor, Dean DeFalco. Oh, hey. So, uh, ladies and gentlemen, uh, how how we doing? We are doing. Ah, uh, we're we're we are doing. We're going. Uh, there's some comic books to re- be read and talked about, and discussions to be had. It'll it'll be a fun podcast. I promise. Outstanding. Uh, chances are the uh, uh, the the missing member of this group will be here next time. Uh, my arch nemesis, Mr. Dan Ryan. But uh, in the meantime, you're just going to have to deal with us, and this is going to be the official Geek Life comic book podcast. We've got video games, we've got Godzilla, and now we've got comic books. So let's just dive right in and see uh, what's everyone been up to. Rachel, what have you been reading lately? Um, a lot of Batgirl. And actually, there was a annual number two where Gail Simone brings in Poison Ivy and makes a bunch of references to the Birds of Prey. And I thought that the dynamics between Poison Ivy and Batgirl, who I was very surprised to see in the same book, uh, they were very interesting and compelling. So I actually went on free comic book day and uh, there was a discount at some really shady shop and I literally bought the entire Birds of Prey series. So I'm slowly catching up on that too. Now you're talking about the new 52 Birds of Prey, correct? Yeah. How is that? Uh, I, I don't. I'm not overly familiar with Birds of Prey, besides the really crappy TV show that was on. What was that? The WB years and years ago. Oh yeah, uh, yeah. yeah. I'm way so, too familiar with everything Birds of Prey, unfortunately. So unfortunately. who's? Oh, all right. Well, who's in the current lineup of of, of Birds of Prey in the the new Fifty Two? Who's who's on that team? Um. Well, of course, there's Canary, and then you got. Poison Ivy, which was completely out of left field. And then, um, actually, I'm drawing many blanks, so I'm hitting the Google machine. Oh, they bring in Batgirl like halfway through because they're like, hey, we're missing some red hair, so let's let's throw that in there. <laughs> Is Katana on that crew? Yeah. Is that the one that she's a part of? Okay. Yeah, she and her, uh, her dead husband sword. That's her dead husband sword. Yeah, she's <laughs> she's a fairly interesting character. I was reading about her in um, JLA when that came out, uh, which was funny because the comic book store I work at, uh, we coded the when Justice League launched with the new Fifty Two, we coded it as JL Justice League of America Series Five because our 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 boss was sure, absolutely convinced that that book would eventually become Justice League of America. And then they launched a separate title called Justice League of America, and it was just really funny, to me anyway. Uh, anywho, back to the, back to the point. Uh, explain to me what the purpose of Birds of Prey is. Like, what is what is why, what does what does this team do? Because it sounds like it's a kind of a mixture of heroes and villains, uh, and and or other sort of shady characters in a sort of way. What is the purpose of this team? How are they how are they formed together in a cohesive unit? And what exactly do they do? Speaking honestly, their purpose 
seems to be just entertainment because I haven't found any other purpose quite yet. And I'm on issue nine, I want to say. But I haven't really found any mission that they're on. They're just kind of killing bitches. Oh, snap. <laughs> so they just go around. They're just a murder squad. Everything. <laughs> no, they're, I mean, of course you have your storyline that kind of somehow touches every single character, even though they're all on different sides of the well and they're all brought together on their mutual thing. But nothing has really resonated in a way that it feels like they have one coherent purpose. Like they're just kind of doing shit. Well, is it an interesting read? Yeah, definitely. I mean, what more could you ask for? Yeah. (laughs) The cool thing is just how the really unlikely paired characters deal with each other and interact. That kind of stuff's always fun. In fact, uh, uh, one of the things I'm enjoying about original sin right now, which is Marvel's big uh, summer crossover event, uh, written by Jason Aaron, who uh, did a really good run on um, Wolverine and the X-Men last year. But uh, I like that in that series, they're pairing up a lot of strange characters. Like, for example, uh, they had Doctor Strange and the Punisher teamed up, which was super fun. And now it seems that the Punisher is hanging out with Rocket Raccoon, which just seems like a match made in heaven. So, yeah, odd pairings tend to make a really good comic reads. The Punisher is just getting around. <laughs> yes, all of the new friends. Oh, <laughs> uh, you've been reading, reading anything else besides Birds Prey and Batman? Batgirl, my bad. Honestly, I haven't really had much time, but I always go back when I have a couple minutes and I just reread Grant Morrison's Arkham Asylum and Alan Moore's The Killing Joke. And those are my two go to doses of comics. Excellent. Rereading things. Ah, I should do that someday. <laughs> Uh, Dean, how about you? What have you been reading? Well, uh, I was catching up this week with some stuff, and if you haven't already noticed by all the stuff we cover in our other podcasts, I'm just a big fucking kid, so when I saw that there were some new cartoony comics coming out, uh, one being Gumball, which I thought was awesome because I love that cartoon on TV, I figured why not pick up the comic, and it was everything I could ask for in a gumball comic. It was silly. It had plenty of jokes. It had really, really good art for something I didn't think was going to. Uh, It kept the general feel of gumball alive, which is kind of weird because if you've ever seen the show, it's all these different art styles mixed together into one show. Like uh, one of the characters is a kind of like a paper cutout what you'd see like on South Park like really really early on and another one's drawn in anime style and another one's 3D generated and stuff it's really really crazy and it translated well into the comic book and I had a lot of fun reading it I'm not gonna lie it was it was pretty cool hmm what is uh explain to me what exactly because uh, I've got absolutely no effing clue I remember seeing this book show up in the store and thinking Okay, sure, that goes in A for Adventures of Gumball. Uh, what What is the premise of this book? Uh, <laughs> um, so it's about these two kids who are in elementary school. It's a, it's a cat and a goldfish, and they just go on these ridiculous adventures together. And when I mean ridiculous, the first one was about them stealing their dad's car so they could be cool enough 
for someone who was able to drive home that day or something. And it had all these, like, you ever have that one panel that you look at and you just start cracking up because of, like, just how ridiculous it is? Yeah, that's happened to me before. Yeah, there were, like, four panels in this book like that, and I I just could not stop laughing. And that's what I like, because I need a laugh after a long day of work. And if I could find something like that, great. And for a while, Adventure Time was kind of like that, but Adventure Time's kind of too kiddy. Gumball is a little just more slapstick and ridiculous, and that's kind of what I need at the end of the day. Is uh, Gumball Pen Ward? No, Gumball is not Pen Ward. Oh, okay. Fuck Pen Ward. Well, Actually, I don't mean that. I love Adventure Time. Wait, so <laughs> there's a cat and a goldfish stealing a car, but I would assume that the cat is the one that's driving, right? How would you know that? How how did you know that? You're you're reading mine, Rachel. I mean, I just kind of assumed because goldfish would have a little bit of trouble working the pedals. Unless the goldfish has a cybernetic suit. He does not have a cybernetic suit, but he is some sort of goldfish mutant, I guess not, because he does have feet. No cybernetic suit, no sail. I ain't fucking reading it, pal. Oh, okay. Wait. okay. Goldfish with feet, that's fucking terrifying. Well, <laughs> you can go ahead and read the book if well, you want. Well, yeah, goldfish with human feet, that would be fucking terrifying. <laughs> goldfish with, like, you know, flipper-type feet. I, you know, I, I can see that happening, you know? Like Muddy Mudskipper on uh, Ren and Stimpy, you know, he kind of folds his back fins into... Little fish feet or something. Guys, I don't know. He wears sneakers. <laughs> Goldfish oh. with Rob Liefeld feet. There we go. <laughs> Which means they're non-existent. Let, let's open up that can of worms again, why don't we? <laughs> Let's not. Well, we'll have plenty of time to talk about uh, Rob Liefeld when we, once we get to our feature topic. But uh, is there anything else you want to talk about, Dean? Anything else? You uh, want to- yeah, real quick. I read the the new Cartoon Network crossover book from IDW. You you said the title before. What was it, Chris? Super Secret Crisis Wars. Thank you. Uh, yeah, it's 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 a book. It's it's got characters that I like. This and- is the team up. Uh, the team up of Mojo Jojo and Aku. Crossing over the multiverse to collect different villains from all of Cartoon Network history and then all of Cartoon Network heroes like the Powerpuff Girls and Samurai Jack and Ed, Ed, and Eddie gather together to fight said villains. Yeah. That sounds like the coolest thing ever. Yeah, and that's what I thought because I looked at the cover and I was like, well, count me the fuck in. This looks cool, but it. Nothing happened in the first book. It it was just all of them getting gathered into like holding cells, and I was like, "Well, that was a waste of twenty eight pages. There could have been so much more that happened." But I'll give it another issue or two to like pick up and see where it goes because it has Ed and Nettie in it. And that was my favorite cartoon growing up. So I'll, oh I'll my give god, it a I hear you. Yeah, it's, it's, that show was amazing. So the dream team. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, so. That and the Powerpuff Girls, there was one specific episode that was all just Beatles puns. I Meet the Beatles. Yep. Yes. The greatest thing ever. And I actually picked up a Powerpuff Girls comic the other day, but I haven't really read it. Is that the one with the the redesigned Powerpuff Girls or is it the old school? No, it stuff? looks uh, it looks like the old uh, Tartatowski stuff. It's it's oh, very cool. it's pretty decent. Yeah. The coolest thing that ever happened on Powerpuff Girls, no offense to meet the Beatles, but I, I honestly don't remember which episode it was, but there was an honest-to-goodness Big Lebowski reference in an episode of the Powerpuff Girls. 
I you know what you can actually look that up online and it and it comes up. I I remember that being a thing. Uh, it's amazing. I mean, because I'm a huge Big Lebowski fan. That movie's astonishing, and it is in no way even tangentially related to being a children's movie. Like, just not even kind of a kids movie. And the fact that they just blatantly referenced it. I mean, obviously without a couple of a a couple of lines, because it's uh, the the scene where they're the, the big Lebowski is sitting in a fireplace talking to the dude and goes to this whole what is a man speech and uh, he's talking about family and whatnot and the dude says, yeah, that and testicles. And uh, they obviously didn't do that in the Powerpuff Girls, but uh, Powerpuff Girls was, was genius stuff. Genius. It, it I want to rewatch it because obviously, I mean, I was basically a fetus when I used to watch that stuff, except not quite. And um, I would not catch any of the references besides the Beatles stuff that my mom would swoon over. But um, I think now I would actually appreciate the children's show a lot more. Yeah, there's that's that was what was great about that stuff. Uh, a lot of the Tartata, or early Gendy Tartatovsky stuff was um, that it, it had that kind of Pixarish quality where you would look at something as a kid and be entertained, but there's also a few nods in there for the parents too. But but we've we've gone a tad bit off topic. We could talk. We'll, we'll have to do a cartoon podcast one of these days too. But uh, <laughs> for now, let's uh, let's get back to business here. So, Dean, you're all you're all done with the uh, with your your new business. Well, yeah, fine. I guess so, Chris. If you just want to rush me out of it, whatever. I do because I want to go to bed. Yeah, <laughs> I'm just kidding. Fine. All right. Well, real quick, let's see. I I, I actually had a a pretty fat week uh, of comics. I have a, I, I have a perfect record of never being behind a week of comics. And this week was a little tough cause I had one, I had not, uh, 10 comics to read this week, which doesn't sound like a lot, but when you have a newborn, uh, a newborn, he's 10 months old. When you have, when you have a baby at home, that, that tends to be a lot. So I'm just going to run down the list and, and, and give you some quick impressions. Uh, Aquaman, still damn good. Even after Jeff Johns left, I think it's a great book and uh, you should read it. Batman was the penultimate issue of the Zero Year story arc, which has been really, really good. Uh, I mean, some people think it's been going on too long. I say as long as it's good, it should go as long as it needs to. And it's been really, really freaking good. Uh, Top-notch art, top-notch writing. Absolutely love it. Uh, Justice League. Uh, post Forever Evil, Lex Luthor thinks he should be joining the Justice League. He found out that Bruce Wayne was Batman, and it, it made for some pretty interesting conversations between Lex and Bruce, and well worth a read. Future's End, been uh, incredibly uneven. This week was no different. It you know, had some cool stuff in it, but whenever Terry McGinnis is on the page, then uh, all is well. Superman 32, which was the debut of uh, John Romita Jr. and Jeff Johns taking over as the creative team on Superman, and also marks the first time John Romita Jr. has worked on DC books. I thought it was really, really good. The uh, another Superman story is kind of uh, it's been kind of done to death. In fact, it's also being done in uh, Jim Lee's uh, Superman Unchained, which has been taking forever to come out with this whole other Superman thing. But the this take on it I find really interesting because it's. It starts. It starts off with a flashback of a um, you know a couple of scientists in a, a lab in like the the fifties or something or the seventies. I can't remember what era it is, but they're doing some crazy experiment that's threatening to destroy Earth. Like something went wrong. This experiment is going to destroy the whole damn planet. Uh, it involves something about like dimensional travel. So the dad of the this uh, scientist couple finds. Uh, 
found this other dimension that they could send their son to that will have similar effects on human physiology as Kryptonian physiology has on Earth. And so they do that and then sacrifice themselves to prevent the lab from being destroyed. And then, you know, a bunch of stuff happens with Superman and then this kid shows up crossing back into the the dimensions. He's an adult now with Superman-like powers and is shocked to find that Earth has not been destroyed. So he's been living in this other dimension almost exactly the same kind of life as Superman the whole time, except this would be like Superman suddenly finding out Krypton was never destroyed in the first place as he thought. You know what I mean? So that was pretty good. Um, I hate the cover art, but John Romita's work seems to work pretty well for the interiors. Uh, Amazing Spider-Man, good times, uh, following up, uh, tying up the loose ends that were left by Superior Spider-Man, including the time when uh, Superior Spider-Man, not knowing that Black Cat and Spider-Man have a decent relationship, punched Black Cat directly in the face and then sent her to jail, which was a good time. Uh, Guardians of the Galaxy, a damn solid book, one of the best Marvel books out there. It's going to make an awesome movie. I need not say any more. Original Sin 3.1, which is a complete waste of my money, and I'm sorry I read it. It seems to propose that Tony Stark was actually responsible for the Hulk in the first place. And I hate that kind of retcon bullshit they like to throw in our faces all the time. Oh, Wolverine was an X-Man before the X-Men. Bullshit, first X-Men. You can kiss the fattest part of my ass. And that's exactly (laughs) how I felt about Original Sin 3.1. I hope it burns in hell. And uh, Mega Man. With mayonnaise. With mayonnaise. Because fuck mayonnaise. Tool of the devil. Uh, Mega Man. Damn good Wait, what did mayonnaise do to you? Mayonnaise is the worst condiment in the history of condiments. I hate mayonnaise. It's just evil. It's just gross. It's grotesque. It's white, creamy, oily, nasty, sweet horribleness. <laughs> it just it jiggles like jello <laughs> defiantly. You, you get a knife and you want to spread it on something. You look at it on the knife and it's just jiggling defiantly like, yeah, yeah, that's right. I'm going to jiggle. I'm going to move on my own because I'm a fucking condiment, but I'm not ketchup. I'm this white, creamy, oil mass that's going to spread all over your sandwiches and give you a horrible aftertaste for six hours. No, fuck mayonnaise. Fuck mayonnaise right in the ass. Fuck mayonnaise. Oh, thank you, Chris, for getting that out on a podcast. <laughs> I've been hey, no wanting problem. that since day one. <laughs> you know, I, I would actually devote an entire podcast to being anti-mayonnaise. Well, we'll have to work on that, but back to what you were saying. Anyway, back to Mega Man. Uh, Mega Man is a great comic. It's based on the video game, the same name. They're doing this whole X crossover thing, which is just just super good, and I freaking love it. But perhaps the most interesting thing I've been reading this week, um, my birthday was uh, just recently passed, and I came home to a... birthday! Oh, thank you. I came home to a kind of sort of surprise party on Sunday night. And um, uh, a bunch of Karen's family was over. Karen's my wife. And um, her mom gave me uh, this book called uh, Super Gods by Grant Morrison. And it's, a, it's, it's just a novel about the history of the comic book industry uh, through Grant Morrison's perspective. And I've read like the first chapter of it and it is freaking fascinating. Um, I know I've read tons of books on the history of the video game industry. It's one of my one of my strong suits. I was able I was allowed to cite myself as a source when I wrote my uh, final term paper in high school on the history of video games <laughs> uh, because I was able to prove to my teachers that I am an expert on the subject, which was which was uh, a fascinating experience. But yeah, this this book. Uh, Super Gods is really, really freaking cool, and I don't know a lot about the history of the comic book industry. I mean, I know, you know like a basic outline. I know you know certain chunks of it, but 
really reading about it. I've never I've never bothered to do it before, and this book is just an out. It was an outstanding gift, and I heartily recommend it to everybody. Well, Chris, that sounds awesome. I'm gonna have to check that out, especially if it's from Morrison, because Morrison can definitely write some interesting stuff. Interesting is the word. Speaking of Grant Morrison and all sorts of other things, let's move on to our feature topic tonight, uh, The New 52 and You. For anybody not in the know of what exactly The New 52 is, DC, after having years and years and years of incredibly, intensely convoluted back history, decided to reboot, in an unprecedented move, their entire line of comics. They canceled everything and started every single thing back at issue one, erasing all previous continuity which, as we will soon discuss, wasn't necessarily true. They didn't erase all of it, just the selective stuff that they wanted to erase. And it doesn't really make a whole lot of sense, but they try not to make you think about it too much. So we're going to discuss the new 52. What does it mean to us, and how does it compare to the old 52, as it were? Um, Go ahead, guys. Start talking. All right. Uh, I mean, basically, for me, it was... Being able to, well, what I thought getting into the new 52 was being able to jump into a point where I would understand things a little bit better. Because at the end of, I, you know, take Batman for instance, what were they at? Like 800 something? I, I think it was in the 800s somewhere anyway. And, you know, they, they literally jumped the shark. Everything that you could do with a normal human being happened. Same thing with Superman, same thing with Flash. You could probably go through all of them. And they've, run the gauntlet with most things. So, I mean, a restart, eh, I, I thought it was in order. But Chris is right. So, you know, you, you jump into these books, and, I you know, I, I wasn't sure what the hell to expect because you just don't know. I They, they said they were going to restart everything. I didn't know if they were going to, you know, start with Bruce Wayne as a little kid or if, you know, Superman was going to be shipped off to Earth like it was straight from the beginning, but they kind of did it their own way. You know, they, they threw you right back in the action, but made the stories sort of easy to to jump into. I mean, Scott Snyder's first run with uh, City of Owls was fantastic. I, I thought that was a great way to get into Batman, and, I mean, that was a hell of a first story arc to get into. Rachel, uh, what's your what's your experience with the New Fifty Two? How was how did it? Uh, were you reading DC Comics before, and how was the transition for you? Well, I'm basically the biggest noob in the world, and I'm going to sound super lame. I actually first got into comics right before the New Fifty Two, so I was about fifteen, sixteen at the time. Um, and my dad, I was super into the Joker. Because I had basically watched The Dark Knight over the course of a couple of years, like six million times, and I would recite it <laughs> practically to my dad, and he'd be like, "Rachel, shut the fuck up, read the Killing Joke. What's wrong with you?" So I'm like, "Okay." So I checked it out, and um, what really struck me, as is probably really obvious in my current comic taste, was the character of Barbara Gordon and how she was shoved aside during that whole story. So I proceeded to look more into her and found Birds of Prey and a DC app for the iPad, which allowed you to kind of splurge via your couch. So I was like, hell yeah. So I spent the summer kind of reading up and really getting invested in that series. And as soon as I had really gotten into it, September rolls around and they rebooted everything. So I was pissed. But um, I think that they handled most of the topics 
pretty well from what my field of knowledge can really grasp. But I mean, I'm such a noob that I can't really say a lot of smart things on this topic other than the fact that they had a really big opportunity to fuck a lot of stuff up and make a lot of people angry. And I think they did successfully make a lot of people angry. But I also think that by rebooting everything, they made their very large characters and larger-than-life storylines a lot more approachable to newer readers. You know, and really the bottom line of this whole relaunch thing was that it was, no matter how you slice it, no matter how many people were ticked off that Superman suddenly didn't have red underwear over his blue outfit anymore, no matter how much that stuff seemed to go awry, this was the first time since Marvel came on the scene that DC is now a real competitor. Uh, Because Marvel is always on top as far as sales are concerned. For years and years and years, always on top. And after the New 52, they go back and forth. It is so much closer now, and occasionally DC is on top, occasionally Marvel's on top. But the New 52 was so successful at getting new readers in that even the stuff that they purportedly screwed up, it's hard to hold that against them because it got so many new readers into their comics. Um, I mean, their their Batman run has been uh, obviously the, the the Snyder stuff you mentioned before. Dean has been getting so much positive buzz that the the first trade paperback of Batman, the Court of Owls, is is still one of the best selling trade paperbacks. Period. Uh, they took characters like Aquaman and uh, Wonder Woman and made them good must read comics. Yeah. You know, I mean, uh, there's been some recent Wonder Woman stuff beforehand, like a Straczynski run and whatnot. That is, it's been good stuff. And in fact, right before um, the New 52, Wonder Woman had gone through kind of a, I don't know if a renaissance is the right word for it, but the book had been picking up a little bit of steam with a a character redesign and, and some stuff. But really, Wonder Woman was one of the characters that benefited a lot from it because uh, the New 52, Azarello's run on the New 52 Wonder Woman is not only phenomenal, but it did a great job of streamlining her backstory and making her a, a much more cohesive and just really interesting character. Um, Jeff John's take on Aquaman uh, has been – it was was stellar. It really catapulted that character back into a, a, sure, a pure point of relevance. And you know him in his own book and his appearance in Justice League – even playing up the fact that in the history of of comic books, he's kind of looked at as a joke now because you know he's the dude who talks to fish. But for all the missteps that the uh, the New Fifty Two has has made, I, the fact that they were able to be so successful in the sales sense really led lends a lot of credence to what they did. And when you look at something like Marvel now or Heroes Reborn, all these kind of soft reboots that Marvel's done, none of those have the teeth that the New 52 did. The fact that they had the balls to re- restart numbering on books like Action Comics, which were which, which just hit 900 before the New 52. like no, Nothing else is that high as far as numbering is concerned. Nothing else is even kind of close to that besides uh, Detective Comics. And they just went ahead and took that and said, nope, we're renumbering everything. Nothing slips through the cracks here. Everything starts back at number one. And I really respected the the gall that they had to do that because 
they were willing to piss off some of their diehard fans in the interest of getting new readers in. I'm a perfect example of that because I had been a lapsed comic reader for a while and then I got a job at the comic book store and the Marvel books were always kind of easier to pick up because they always have like synopses in the first couple of pages or so and and they're easier to just kind of pick up and run with. You, you know that there's a whole lot of history but at the same time it doesn't matter that you're not going to know all of it because they're going to find a creative way of writing that stuff together. The good ones at the very least will do that for you but DC stuff – I would walk the wall and say, I want to pick up Justice League. And I'd pick up an issue of Justice League, and I, I have no idea who any of the characters are. I think Justice League, I think, you know, the Super Friends or the old Justice League cartoon. I want Batman, I want Superman, Wonder Woman, Green Lantern, Flash. I want those characters on a team. And by the time the, uh, the old 52, as it were, ended, there was nobody I knew on the Justice League. It, just none of it. So when they relaunched and the Justice League was exactly the characters I wanted it to be, and then they had a handful of other weird characters, like they pulled in some other Wildstorm properties that they had acquired over the years, like Voodoo and Grifter, and they they were fairly interesting. You know, weird stuff like Frankenstein, Agent of Shade. They really had a very, very diverse lineup of books when the New 52 started. Well, and I mean, just to go over that real quick, I was actually going to mention that was that... The books that they had, I mean, there were there were the front runners like Flash and Aquaman, Green Lantern, and all that. But there are a lot of you know kind of books on the side that, given they probably should have gone a little further with it, I thought they would have. Um, Dial H was really cool. Savage Hawkman, uh, Deathstroke yeah. was one of my favorites. You know, uh, well, Hawkman and Deathstroke both met the same fate. They I, were yeah. Yeah, I know. They started to dip in sales, and they said, "Ah, oh, well, these books are failing. Let's give them to Rob Liefeld. And then they got canceled because everybody stopped buying them. Yeah, you know, and the thing was, you know, uh, Deathstroke had a really cool story arc with Lobo and everything, too, which with Lobo's a really freaking cool character, not going to lie. And to put him up against Deathstroke, another badass, I thought that was really awesome. But, yeah, you know, they got canceled. Uh Dial H was, again, another really obscure book, which they've done in the past before, but just never really met a good amount of success. I think uh, back in the 80s, it had a pretty good run, but I those are all really cool books to me at the start that kind of got me to open up my view on comics a little bit more than just Batman or Superman and stuff, and ultimately uh, led to me finding other books and other publishers uh, besides... Marvel and DC. Yeah, and that's kind of the shame of it is that as time goes on, those those different books, those oddity, oddity titles are you know falling to the wayside while we get more Batman and more Superman and more Wonder Woman. And those, those tentpole books just keep replacing all the experimental odd titles in the DC universe. And it you know, it's it's a symptom of what sells because when you get right down to it, they are in business to make money. And if their books aren't selling, then they've got to cancel and replace them with something they think will. And you know, you see missed opportunities like Sword of Sorcery featuring Amethyst uh, to have another strong female character in the comic book world. And it just, you know, they didn't put their top tier writers on it and just kind of fell apart. But those kind of weirdo titles, like you were mentioning, like, uh, and even lesser known characters like like static shock and 
uh, other oddball DC characters that fit into this DC universe. Demon Knights is another good one. Um, it's a shame to see that that stuff slip to the side because the diversity that the New 52 brought was really interesting and I was glad that they did it. Uh, Swamp Thing is a relevant title again. You know, yeah. a very relevant title. That, that book still sells well enough to not get canceled, so hooray well, for that. I mean, that huge crossover they had with Animal Man when that stuff first came out, that was, man, that was money. I recommend that crossover to anyone. Rot World, it gets a little bit uh, crazy with how many books it spans, but if you just read Animal Man and Swamp Thing, I guarantee you, you'll, you'll be happy if you're looking for a dark read. Speaking of crossovers, they just did a Swamp Thing Aquaman crossover, which was really interesting. That does sound uh, interesting. Well, yeah, I mean that sounds so cool. It's 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 incredibly cool because it's like you know he is plant life, and there's all this crazy plant life in the ocean, and it yeah, was which, really honestly, really interesting. It makes me wonder how they haven't thought about that before. I, yeah, it seems so obvious, but I mean that's that's one of the great things about bringing a character like Swamp Thing into the DC universe proper. You know what I mean? Where he can interact with characters like Aquaman. Uh, so so yeah, they've they've done a lot of good in um, in, in the New Fifty Two. I'd say overall, I'm a big fan of it because I wasn't reading much DC before the New Fifty Two, and now I read or regularly read several DC titles. So they won me over with the New Fifty Two. Something that I definitely want to refer back to that was said earlier that I think is a testament to how successful the New 52 has been is um, when you, Chris, were describing your experience with almost being intimidated by how difficult it was to catch on to like Justice League and stuff prior to the New 52 and how Marvel was a lot easier to jump to, since I have become more and more of a reader after the new 52 i have had the complete opposite experience and i'm super intimidated by marvel and very comfortable just jumping into a dc book so i think that that really shows how much things have changed yeah and it kind of makes you it kind of puts marvel in a weird position because what as soon as the new 52 worked as soon as it was this huge financial success Everyone anticipated Marvel doing the same thing, and then they wound up doing Marvel Now, which was just a kind of a soft reboot that didn't really stick. It didn't really excite anybody. Um, but when you think about it, it's kind of like the way movies work, where they, they do these reboots or, or animated series or TV series where they do reboots every several years or so because – the continuity, no matter what you do, if you stick with it long enough, is going to get very complicated, and then there's no way to get new readers or new viewers or a new audience for what you're doing unless you provide them with a good jumping on point, a solid jumping on point. And right. with the DC Universe being as young as it is, and also the way that they've been releasing the trade paperbacks in a very clear and concise order, this is where you start and you go from there. Uh, it, it made everything very accessible, and Marvel really needs to jump on making that better for their books because it, that can be very intimidating. Uh, when customers come in the store, uh, boy, they missed a huge opportunity with the Avengers. Uh, after the Avengers movie came out, oh yeah, lots of customers coming in the store. I want to read the Avengers, and I would just point to the wall and say, "Well, here's 35 different Avengers titles." 
None of them have anything to do with what's happening in the movie, and they're all complicated as shit. So good luck. You know, where do you tell somebody to start reading the Avengers? That's a reasonable thing to do. And that was the situation that I was in pre-New 52. I wanted to read Green Lantern before the New 52. And my friend Tony, um, who is on another great comic book podcast, uh, Comic Book Fans United, a uh, little plug for for Tony over there. Uh, he had him and my friend Rich listed this just this massive list of trades that I had to read if I was going to get caught up on Green Lantern, and I was so I I don't have the time, I don't have the money to to blow through all of this stuff, so I. I just never did it, and and uh, the New Fifty Two is an opportunity for me to jump into Green Lantern mythology. But unfortunately, that opportunity was kind of weird because Batman and Green Lantern, and to a certain extent Superman, are three pieces of continuity where old Fifty Two stuff still kind of takes place in the New Fifty Two, well, which they, is they pick and chose what they wanted. Exactly. Like, there's a handful of Green Lantern stuff that's still relevant. Um, apparently, Superman, the death of Superman still happened, although I have no clue how that fits into the mythology at all because it doesn't make a lick of yeah, sense. It, it, you know, of course, the one thing they leave is that he died once already. Of course. Yes, Doomsday killed Superman. That happened. How that happened, when that could have happened, because when the New 52 started, um, it was supposed to be five years. Like five years. That's it. They, these superheroes have been around for five years. So Death of Superman doesn't really seem all that impressive for a character that had only been in the public eye for maybe three years uh, to have been killed, and that being like, I don't know. It doesn't make it doesn't make a shit bit of sense. No, so the, the whole Batman continuity thing. Like, yeah, Batman still had like six different Robins, even though he's only been Batman for five years. Apparently, uh, hey, look over there, something shiny. <laughs> and uh, then you have um, the uh, the Superman stuff, the Batman stuff. Uh, Batgirl, Barbara Gordon, is uh, suddenly able to walk again uh, yeah, because the I killing could go jokes on still happen for like six hours. Yeah, the killing jokes still happen, but she got better. Uh huh. And not that I really particularly mind Barbara Gordon being Batman. I I don't necessarily think that is inherently a bad thing, but at the same time, Oracle is such an interesting character. Well, my what? biggest problem with that was how they, like, not necessarily the fact that she changed characters, but the fact that they stripped the character of all the dignity and complexity that she had gained throughout that process. But the only thing that made me okay with it, because honestly, if they didn't put Gail Simone on the book because I loved the way that she handled Barbara and Birds of Prey... I would have literally just stopped reading comics because I wasn't in so deep that I was really hooked on the medium. I was just hooked on the character, really. Um, so I think that was an excellent choice. Yeah, putting Gail on that book was definitely a, a, a good move. And keeping her on that book, regardless of her occasionally not being on the book anymore, which is <laughs> some strange yeah. Twitter things where she'd like find out, oh, I'm not on Batgirl anymore. And Daisy would be like, no, you're good. Ignore everything. We're good. Don't look at the man behind the curtain. But, um, <laughs> oh man, I was just going to say something and it was going to be awesome. Mayonnaise. How dare you? <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. Uh, yeah. That, that... No, I was, that's what I was going to say. Um, 
and and this thought literally just popped in my head as I was talking about it. But there's since the new fifty two is kind of a reboot, there's nothing stopping them from paralyzing Barbara Gordon at some point. There's yeah, nothing but- stopping them from making that character back into that kind of character in the future. What confuses me is that the killing joke has happened, but they kept those three years in between the killing joke and when New 52 Batgirl picked up kind of obscure to the point where she could have been Oracle for like five minutes. And they're leaving that without an answer. And I I think that it's purposeful. I think that there's a plan because also, do you guys read Batgirl 32? No. Okay. Um, do you intend on reading Batgirl Thirty Two? Just go. It's for the good of the podcast. Just go ahead and let us know what you're what you're thinking. Spoilers right. away. Spoiler alert! Up. Okay. Um. So, Batgirl's fucked. Everybody's out to get her. Blah blah blah. It, there are like three pages left of the book, and you're just like, okay. There's no way that there's going to be any kind of wonderful victory. So what's going to happen here? And you can tell that it's leading to some kind of greater arc going on and she calls in black canary and is like hey i need some loving because there's no way i could do the ship by myself and it's you know they interacted a lot in birds of prey in the new 52 and a little bit here and there in batgirl so it wasn't a big surprise and then um black canary says on i think the second to last page like oh um i'm gonna bring a friend along i hope that's okay and then on the very last page it's just a full page panel of Black Canary introducing Huntress to Batgirl. And it's huh. like, what the fuck? So, I mean, I really don't know where they're going to go with this, but there is a possibility to really, especially with um, the fact that the new 52 Birds of Prey, I believe, was just canceled. So yes, yes. they could really do some shit there. They could. Ah, well... That was fun. Uh, fine. <laughs> we're uh, we're we're getting we're getting to the point where we should probably start wrapping this up. So, any anybody final thoughts on the new Fifty Two? Do we like it? Do we hate it? Is it a good thing? Is it a bad thing? Will Marvel follow suit? Is mayonnaise the most disgusting thing on the planet? Go. Mayonnaise is rank, and I don't think Marvel really has a choice but to find some way because at this point, Marvel's killing it in the box office cinematically but dc is trying to is making moves to catch up with the impending justice league films so Uh, i think that it's yeah i know (laughs) i think it's time for marvel to kind of take the next step to catch up with the strides that dc has been taking in order to stay up with you know the whole competition thing that's important it is indeed dean thoughts uh firstly any DC movie has got to be better than the new Ninja Turtles movie. Alert. Alert. We are about to go seriously off track. Prepare for stabilization. So oh, my let, God. Let's, let's just get that out there. And we, I, I won't even go into that. that. You, don't do that to me, Dean. <laughs> I'm, I'm trying to wrap up this podcast. Don't get me started talking about turtles. Uh, that, that movie is that mayonnaise. It, that movie is mayonnaise. That movie may as well be may as well be called Hellman's. All right, but uh, he oh, sh- Ninja Hellman's. Oh. I, I have. Did you guys watch the Ninja Turtles cartoon? Yeah. And you guys watch here yeah. and there. Did, My you, nephew are, loves Ninja Turtles. Are you caught up? I'm caught no. up. Dean. Yeah. You saw the most recent episode. Yeah. 
Holy crap. Yeah, man. Yeah, dude. That Holy that, crap. that show is something else. I'll tell you that much, dude. That that show that is, is how awesome. you reinterpret a really quick tangent here. I don't mind when you reinterpret things, especially stuff like the Ninja Turtles. Like, I do not mind reinterpretations. And the current iteration of the comic book, which is my favorite comic book being printed, is a complete reimagining of the Ninja Turtles. Uh the cartoon that's the the current CG cartoon on Nickelodeon is definitely a reimagining. They have changed shit seriously uh, from the original source material, and I don't mind as long as you do it with love and respect for the source material. I never mind reimaginings of things as long as they're done with love and respect to the source material, and that is my big problem with Transformers because there is absolutely no love or respect for the source material in those movies. It does nothing but a disservice to anything that made that stuff good back in the day it just completely and oftentimes literally pisses on it when there's a character that actually pulls off a, a gas cap or something and a transformer starts pissing on something you have crossed a fucking line mr bay go rod in hell but the ninja turtles what they seem to be doing with this now i haven't seen the movie so i have to reserve a certain level of judgment because it's a Ninja Turtles movie i'm, I'm gonna see it i'm not gonna be happy about it but i'm gonna see it but everything i've seen about it seems to have zero respect for the source material. Well, well, Chris, do you know who's playing Leonardo? I don't. Do you want me to tell you? Oh, go ahead. What difference does it make? Johnny Knoxville. Wait, Johnny is that a Knoxville. joke? No, that's a serious... I, you know what? We were doing a podcast, which will be out next week, on the Ninja Turtles uh, yesterday, and... Uh, we were at the end of the podcast, and of course we got to that point where we had to bring up this movie, and... We just so happened to look at the uh, the the whole thing for the the cast list, and three names popped up. One of which most people already know, which is Megan Fox as April O'Neil, which I don't agree with. Uh, the next one was Bull Arnett as her uh, her boss in the movie, which okay, I could see. Yeah, the the News Network guy, fine, cool. The last one was Johnny Knoxville as Leonardo, and I, I, I wanted to cry because that makes no sense whatsoever. Just none. But I feel I, like sometimes those casting decisions that make absolutely no sense turn out to be the only thing that saves the movie. I'm going to keep true, an open yes. mind. but I'm, I'm with Rachel on that. I'm going to keep an open mind because like everyone's making a big stink about Ben Affleck as Batman, but I remember when they cast Heath Ledger as the Joker, and I thought that's really, exactly what I was just going to say. Heath Ledger, the, the but I've never been more wrong. So I obviously don't know shit about shit. Well, I'm I'm excited for Batfleck. I, I I'm interested in Batfleck, but the Ninja Turtles movie, they look like monsters. They're ten feet tall. They've got creepy lips and noses. They look like monsters. The animators are obviously so masturbatory that they put all this shit all over them so that they're all wearing all these different little doodads and things that can move around when the characters move. So it's just all, hey, let's make this look as neat as possible. And they're all these just just jacked and roided up, and they don't look like teenagers, which is one of the four words of the goddamn <laughs> title. <laughs> If they're not Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, they're just Ninja Turtles. Call the movie Ninja Turtles and I won't hold that fact against you. But these part of what makes these characters what they are is the family dynamic and the fact that they're young. The fact that they're kids that are they, – they have this they're, – they're powerful because they're mutant turtles. But they, they act like kids. They're 
they're kind of irresponsible, but they they're learning and they're good guys. And that whole dynamic is one of the things that makes them so interesting. And this movie does not seem to have that. It seems to be missing that essential soul that makes this property is absurd. There's no getting around it. This is an absolutely absurd property. It was originally invented as a friggin' parody of Daredevil stuff, for crying out loud. But at a certain point, there became – there was so much love involved in writing this and putting it together that it became more than it originally was. Obviously, there's the 80s nostalgia from the old cartoon, which is a big part of why I fell in love with them was the old 80s cartoon. But what really solidified – really solidified my love of this property was the first movie and that live action movie is it's still my favorite movie of all time because it is done with this this level of heart and love for the source material it reinterprets things it obviously it pulls from the mythology of the cartoon that was very different from the original comic book and it kind of meshes them together in such a loving way and gets that brothers dynamic between all four of the turtles it gets them it gets it so well and the splinter father figure type thing, it just works in in such a great way that really resonated with me when I was a kid. And plus you also had the extraordinary, ex- extraordinarily expressive practical effects from Jim Henson's Creature Shop. And Henson was just a goddamn genius because I still think those suits look amazing. There seems to be to be sure. There are things that you can see when a turtle falls down and the shell bends because you can tell it's made of foam and and little things like that. But you really got to be looking for them because the way they made their faces so expressive, CG still can't match that because CG hits that whole uncanny valley thing. And practical effects are amazing, which is one of the things that makes me so happy about the next Star Wars movie is they're using as much much as they can in practical effects. Making the Ninja Turtles these gigantic CG abominations just hurts. It just absolutely hurts because it doesn't look like it has any love involved. It just looks like, hey, look what we can do. And that should never be what this property is about. That's what makes the cartoon, the current iteration of the cartoon good. That's what makes the current iteration of the comic book fucking stellar is because it's written so well and because it is written with love and care that's what makes it so good and that's why i'm angry about this movie i could give two shits and a flying fuck who's directing it if they treat it with respect then i'm good then i'm set it doesn't even have to be an amazing movie but what they've done to these characters if i was a kid and i saw those things i would be shitting myself and running out of the theater if I saw the the trailer with Michelangelo threatening to find April and taking off his mask and saying, it's just a mask, it's just a mask, that's kind of a funny gag. But at the same time, this giant turtle creature with human lips and these little holes in the front of his face for his nose and this big gap in his teeth or whatever the hell's going on there, that thing is an abomination. That thing is like... Satan tore open <laughs> the earth and sent this creature to terrify children. I hope that kids run screaming out of that theater and it doesn't make any money because they are monsters. And that is a thing that they've purposely avoided in the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles mythology over the years is that these things should be hideous, you know, but Splinter looks kind of like an old man 
and the Ninja Turtles have this certain quality to them that is approachable. And by trying to make them realistic, taking the same approach that Michael Bay did with the Transformers, like, well, the Transformers wouldn't look like these sleek designs that the, of the 80s. They would have all these intricate hundreds of little tiny moving parts. They over-designed this shit, and they over-designed the Ninja Turtles. And while you can kind of sort of pull that off with robots, you've turned these lovable characters into actual terrifying monsters. Yeah. And that's unacceptable. And that's how I feel about Ninja Turtles. Well, Chris, that was fantastic. Thank you. Your passion is just incredible. Well, you know what? If they put even a fraction of the passion that I just exuded into that movie, then I'll be satisfied. But I don't think that they did. I think it's just going to be one big long booger and fart joke and then things are going to blow up and the Shredder is going to look like the Silver Samurai from the end of that shitty Wolverine movie and I'm going to go home crying. It's okay. Uh, <laughs> totally. Like, I think you just pretty much ended the podcast there. I don't. I don't think any of us could come back with anything to say. But uh, yeah, yeah that, that DC. That's... Yeah, <laughs> the new Fifty Two. We like it. So that's going to be the end of the pilot episode of um, Paper Cuts. Uh, it, it's it's going to be an interesting ride. We're going to obviously change things up considerably. There's going to be a different. Uh, a different cast here and I probably won't be involved because uh, I have way too much crap to do. <laughs> and uh, But you can catch me and Dean on the Stone Age Gamer podcast. Uh, you can catch Dean on any number of podcasts here on geeklife.com. And uh, Rachel, you've obviously got stuff to plug. You're a musician and you have a tour and all sorts of other stuff. Tell us what's going on. Yeah, um, we're heading out on tour across Jersey, a couple different places in New York and the city, uh, Philly, Connecticut, and Virginia on July 6th, starting at the Meadowlands Fair in Jersey. And all that info can be found on my website, rachelmillermusic.com. We're heading into the studio soon to work on our first super intense Amaze Balls quality album. Uh, that we're really putting our whole heart and soul into, and uh, it's going to be a good year. Excellent. Dean, you got anything else to plug for yourself? Uh, well, as usual, you're right. I'm just a whore all over the internet. Uh, so, yeah, check check me out on YouTube, playing video games and stuff, losing my mind. We're almost done with Tiny Toons Adventures. Thank fucking God, because I don't think I could stand another minute of that game. Uh, and watch me slowly lose my mind as you catch the first episode and I'm all happy-go-lucky and then near halfway I get a little dissatisfied and then by the end I almost want to cry. I think at one point I do actually cry. If you want to see a grown man cry, watch this. <laughs> uh, all the links uh, to all the stuff that we do will be linked in the show notes under useful links because that's all we do is have useful links. So I think that's it for me, Chris. Awesome. And like I said, you can catch me on the Stone Age Gamer podcast. Uh, you can also find me in the current issue of Nintendo Force Magazine, which is an honest-to-goodness uh, published, printed magazine about Nintendo. It's the spiritual successor to Nintendo Power. And uh, you can find all that information at nintendoforce.com. And it does have some pretty cool Nintendo comics in it, too, because uh, somebody's got to write them, right? And with that, we're going to call it a night. Uh, thanks, everybody, for listening, and we will see you next time.